Welcome to Your Better Life with Gary Collins. We all know life is rough, so come get your hard hat. Here's Gary. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Better Life Podcast. I am your host, Gary Collins, the creator of the thesimplelifenow.com, the Simple Life and Off the Grid best-selling book series, and book four of The Simple Life is going to be live by the time this comes out. It's The Simple Life Guide to Financial Freedom. It is my best book yet. I'm biased. I wrote it, but I think it's really good. It's totally different from other personal finance books. So go out there and go get it. And also the other series I've been talking about, a thriller series I've co-written and consulted on with author A.C. Fuller is out. It's called The Crime Beat, Episode 1, New York. And by the time this comes out, Episode 2 and maybe even Episode 3 will be out. So make sure to go to Amazon, go check those out. You can go check out my books at my website, thesimplelifenow.com. And to stay in touch, make sure to go to thesimplelifenow.com forward slash better life. You get a bunch of free goodies. You get to be part of the special simple life circle where we all get together without all kinds of social media and trolls and all that good stuff. We eliminate all that. But today I have a very special, special guest. My Michael Osterlink. Me and Michael became, oh, when did we meet each other? About five, six months ago, maybe? I don't even remember. Yeah. Yeah, I was on his podcast and uh, spewed my craziness and philosophy. And he actually decided to keep in touch with me, shockingly. So Michael has a very unique background. So if you would just briefly discuss where you, where you came from, where you were at, and about what you teach and all that good stuff for Seal Fit and all that. That's great. Hey, first of all, thanks for having me on, Gary. I appreciate it. And uh, congratulations on both your books, the nonfiction, which I can't wait to read, and the fiction coming out uh, by the time the show airs. Once again, congratulations. So uh, background, I wear many hats. I'm uh, trained and licensed as a psychotherapist. Uh, graduate work was in transpersonal psychology. and my Postgraduate work was in somatic or body-oriented psychology. Also got certified in spiodynamics, which is a way of understanding how cultures develop, sociocultural systems develop over time. Uh, presently, I do three or four different things, uh, and actually half of them intersect with uh, you. Uh, <laughs> one, I'm, I'm head instructor at SealFit's Academy. Um, I coach uh, uh, people there, as well as I have students that I teach our methodology to become coaches as well. And I run various programs for SealFit. I'm also a transpartisan social entrepreneur. I've been doing public policy work for about 19 years. Uh, presently, most of my work is in the national security space from DOD reform to cybersecurity. But I've worked on a wide variety of issues from Federal Reserve transparency to questions on foreign policy, healthcare, uh, education. But uh, I mostly work from the transpartisan perspective, if we can get into that. At a later date, um, you mentioned my podcast, O Radio. I interview some amazing people, including yourself. Well, thank and, you. Uh, fourth thing I do, and this is also where you and I connect, is I, I get to explore and play in what I would call post conventional spaces in our culture. People thinking outside the box, kind of creating new ways of living, which are more healthy and, and 
exciting and interesting than kind of the conventional corporate corporate state space that most people play in. How's that? I think that works. That should give us plenty of material to go over. Uh, nice. But today we want to we want to focus on because I think this is very important and where we we kind of intersect in philosophies and the things that I teach in and believe in and what you teach. And also for people who may be new to this podcast, that this isn't just going to be a typical podcast. I'm going to bring on guests and talk about subjects that will open your mind. Uh, look at things from a different angle. Your better life is about anything where you can learn, teach, and implement these tools and skills to make yourself and other people's lives better. That's what it's all about. So that's a wide, wide swatch to pick from. So today, though, I want to talk about free will and personal freedom. And the reason I want to talk about this is <sighs> humans inherently are free. When you go back and look at the organism of humans, even animals, uh, that's the whole thing is freedom, right? But we're the only true conscious that we know entity on the planet. We, we don't have the ability to study the consciousness of animals. We just don't. My dog, I know has feelings. I know can learn and react to certain things, but a lot of it's instinctual, even though we've bred it out of dogs, primarily a lot of their instincts, but it's still there. It's still underneath. But when it comes to humans, the, 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 the concept of freedom, I think, has become clouded. And free will ties into the sense of, you know, the, we were talking earlier before we recorded about the concept of objectivism as by Ayn Rand. And most people don't understand. She created that as a philosophy through the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. So she had to make these. These are fictional books that she had to make work. She's a very interesting individual. I've read her books years ago. I'm rereading them again. And it's interesting to see that, but she created it to make the book work. It was also her philosophy in a sense, but she had to make this work. So it's a weird kind of concept that's based upon fictional and actuality. And, but part of that is that we are free to choose our own freedom. You either don't or you do. There's no gray area in there. You either choose to be free or you choose to be part of the collective and not be free. That's the best way I can put it. I'm sure I'm butchering it. <laughs> but, but with that, I think today, and I, I wonder, get your opinion on this, Michael, because obviously you do deep in-depth studying and you have a full background in this, is that we have allowed our personal freedoms to basic, basically be taken, even though we have the choice to choose them still. Uh, we live in the freest country in the world. There's no doubt about that. We have a ton of problems. And I think one of the biggest one is today is being handcuffed by a societal norm that we did not create, that we are willingly participating in and allowing to overtake us, take our personal freedom, take our happiness and, and almost stifle our creativity, our ability to learn new things, be open-minded. What, what are your feelings on that? So I would make distinctions. Um, one is inner freedom, which we, we, you've already started talking about. 
and I'll address as well. And then political freedom or external freedom. And that'd be freedom from the state mm -hmm. as a institution that uses force to get its way. But let's just stick with the inner freedom. And I, and I partially disagree with you. I don't think it's uh, either oh. or. Either oh, wait, 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 Michael. You cannot be on this show if you're going to disagree with me. I'm <laughs> No, and that's why I hope people understand. I don't say I'm right. I, I just have my opinions, and the guests will probably have very different opinions, and I... That's awesome. So feel free. Don't worry about it. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I think there's actually degrees of freedom. Um, you know, I'm sure that at some level, at the existential level, we could state that either you're free or you're not. But I think for... Most people, for most of the times, we can talk about degrees of freedom. Because even if you might be free in one aspect of your life, in term, and I mean inner freedom, I don't necessarily mean political freedom. Okay. Uh, most likely, there are uh, cultural forces that uh, you either intentionally buy into, so you're free to choose them, but for the most part, you'll unintentionally follow them. You know, you talk about collectivism. Uh, and I have to imagine that most people unconsciously follow various cultural forces as the norm. That's just what we do. Yep. But on occasion, they will be free from very specific things like family of origin programming or religious programming or ethnic and nationality program. So I think you can be, you can have various degrees of inner freedom. Okay. That's what I'm just disagreeing with you on. And, and I see your point on that for me. And I've been told this through my, decades in the government and numerous people and bosses tell me I, do, I only see in black and white. Sometimes <laughs> they go, you don't have a whole lot of gray area. And I go, actually I do. Um, but the way I think it can come out as you're either all in or you're out. And with freedom, the way I look at it, yeah, there are different levels, but it's within making that choice to me. If you choose to be free, there will be levels of freedom within that choice or you choose yes. not to be free and you kind of eliminate those levels of freedom, right? Even though technically they're in there and in society today, I think what we've been, what's been done is we've been programmed to do what we're told. Don't ask questions, just get on that hamster wheel and go as fast as you can and eat as much sugar and carbohydrates until your heart explodes. <laughs> and then we'll get another hamster. And if we need to fix the wheel, we'll fix the wheel. Um, but otherwise, shut up and run, you know, run, boy, run. Uh, I, I completely agree with you. And that's why I'm very fascinated with what, what I would, would call the people playing in the post-conventional space who are recognizing the limitations of cultural programming and, and ultimately creating new cultural programming, which will have to be deconstructed and replaced eventually. Yeah. At least at this moment, they're, you know, they are, you are on the cutting edge recognizing that, you know, the way we are living is not conducive to our health and happiness, you know, for whether it's Madison Avenue or Hollywood or the government or some various combinations of the three or four or five different institutions telling you how to live. You know, what's great is a lot of people saying, no, no, you know, this doesn't really work for me. Why do we have to do this five day, six day a week work thing? Why do we have to do this eight to six work thing? Why do I need to sit in traffic an yeah. hour every day? You know, lots of questioning of basic norms of our society and people are, you know, checking out, you know, as Timothy Leary might have said or did say, you know, they're dropping out of, of the cultural space, uh, you know, the conventional cultural space and playing around and creating something new or something news, you know, lots of different experiments. I think that's very cool.
And that's what you do. I mean, that's what you've done you with your, you know, second half of your adult life, right? Yeah. And, and that's what I mean. The simple life concept is a lot. There's a lot more to it than the surface in what I'm teaching. And I'm teaching different facets, right? It's not just self-help, woo-woo, you know, visualization boards and, you know, sitting and visualizing yourself driving a Lamborghini. I, I find that to be very uh, false prophetish and crap, <laughs> even though I believe in some of it. But what I'm trying to teach in the simple life is to find, find your happiness. And, and for me, I always talk about the definition of personal freedom or freedom to me is the pursuit of your own personal freedom and maximum happiness or optimal happiness, long as it doesn't impinge on someone else trying to accomplish the same thing, right? Right You know, and also the golden rule, you treat others as you wish to be treated. I, I live by basic concepts that have been around and been a part of the human organism for basically millions of years. Uh, because you know, we could not be here today without these kind of set of rules. And I think what's happened today is we have lost sense of that. And I, I just recently learned that the smartest you will ever be in your life is the day you are born. We have twice as many neurons in our brain the first day we're born than we do as adults. But as, as we age, they start to go away. And you, we've always heard that a young child is a sponge. And that is actually factually true. And with that, the programming, though, what do we do with our children today? We plant them in front of a TV or a device, and that's it. And I think the programming starts right out of the gate. And we're doing it. We're doing it to ourselves. I think what I'm trying to teach is, hey, we've met the enemy and it's us. <laughs> you know, we need to fix this instead of governments, instead of groups, uh, you know, movements in a, in a sense of false prophets. It's we need to take control of our individual life first. Now, I have two quick. I'll, I'll run this. And I want to get your take on this. I have two basic premises that kind of fit into my overall philosophy. You have to be a good follower before you can become a good leader. You have to learn to follow before you can learn to lead. You have to fix yourself and you have to find your own personal freedom before you can teach anything to anyone else. You can't do it before you fix yourself. And that means you have to be selfish, not narcissistic. That's a different definition. But it's upon taking self-responsibility, being self-reliant, to take on things and do them for yourself first before you can go out and help other people. I, that's a lot of what my philosophy is based upon. So um, I'm a developmentalist in nature in terms of looking how individuals, communities, cultures, societies develop over time, historically over time. And uh, I would partially agree with what you said, but I would add the caveat. Okay. That I don't think that there's an end stage like, oh, I'm free now. I can go teach. I think there's degrees of freedom degrees of learning to be a follower, degrees of learning to be a leader that you can then integrate into your life. And then you, you know, model it to other people or formally teach it. But I don't know that there's like an end state, like I'm an enlightened, free human being. Oh, no, no. I agree. And I can go out in the world and be, you know, be the Messiah for that particular cause. Or no, you're seeing you never want to be, call yourself a Messiah. I, the, you never, I, I feel you never want to do that because yeah. that, that starts to go into, egotist and narcissist 
right? So yeah. a sociopath, it starts a psychopath. It starts venturing into a different category. And right. I totally agree with you. I, you know, I never call myself a leader. I just don't. Do I do things that lead people into other things or different aspects of their life? Sure. But I'm not the top of the mountain. I'm just a part of the mountain. We're all part of it. And that's how I look at it, but not in the collectivist side. And that's where I think people confuse me on the black and white side. They think I delineate things into certain categories and there's no wiggle room. Absolutely wiggle room. If you ever think you have found enlightenment, total enlightenment, I think you missed the boat. Um, I think we'll take that last breath still chasing that enlightenment. And I, I sure hope so. I think that's another problem we have today is we're not pursuing continual enlightenment, education, uh, broad spectrum of thinking. Yep. I think that's what's inhibiting most humans. And people don't understand that being a, an American is a culture upon its own. <laughs> yes. And that's yes. what's very unique is America is a culture, wrong or right. And, and, and we've become very polarizing in our views today. And that's another part of the problem. And I think that's because we're, we're, we're becoming part of teams instead of being a part of humanity is the best way to put it. Yeah. You know, two, two things. I think it'd be also important to make distinctions between the concepts of enlightenment in the East and the concepts of enlightenment in the West. And I think what you and I are talking about presently is enlightenment in the West, which always requires a sense of curiosity and exploration because it's a never ending process. Yeah. Like the scientific method as an example, you know, um, and in terms of the individual being part of a tribe as opposed to part of the species, you know, if you look at developmental literature, it makes sense why people see themselves as part of tribes. It's, it's ingrained in us as part of our brain. Yeah, hunter-gatherers, absolutely. Yeah, but it doesn't mean we have to be stuck there. You know, if you look at developmental literature, it goes from egocentric to sociocentric or group-centered or tribal-centric to the possibility of a world-centric, meaning you see yourselves as part of the larger species, not just a particular group. But the, you know, the kind of the motion is transcend and include. So you transcend your own ego limitations, you become part of a group. Cool. That's like the next step. The next step after that is you transcend the limitations of that group, that tribe, whatever that tribe is. And you recognize you're part of all humanity. doesn't mean you jettison. You can still be part of a group and you can still have an ego. You know, that's just who we are as human beings. But you, you also hopefully recognize the limitations of each of those stages. And you become world-centric or you see the totality of the species. And if you even want to go beyond that, you can, you know, you can become uh, like life-centric. You don't have to stop at your own species. But you can see yourself as part of the whole Gaia you know, phenomenon. You know, in terms of a complex adaptive system called the Earth, yeah, with multitude of different types of intelligences that are floating around, including our puppies that you've you mentioned earlier, <laughs> for dogs. <laughs> yeah, well, it was funny. You said, "Well, I hope my dog." You don't hear my dog. Well, when we first started recording it, my dog was drinking like a buffalo out of his dog bowl downstairs, and I could hear it echoing all the way, <laughs> all the way <laughs> yes. there. And I go, for, you know, obviously he had to wait till I started recording to make sure. Right. He, gulped his gallon of water. Um, but yeah, awesome. And with, I think another problem we ignore as well 
and I do fully admit this, is humans have species. And there are different species of humans, which we may call ethnicity or cultural, but there are divisions of humans, just like there's divisions, different, different species of, of, you know, canine, different species of bovine. I mean, there's different little subspecies in there. And that doesn't mean that they're, they're again, compartmentalized in their own groups. Absolutely not. It's still the big group is humans, right? Within yeah. humans, though, we have these different groups that have different interests, different beliefs, you know, different physical characteristics, different, yeah. different, different ways of thinking, different philosophies, different religions. It's this huge pool of ideas. But in the end, we're still humans and we must treat each other again as we wish to be treated outside of those differences. Right. And being yeah. open to those differences. And I think, see, that as a big problem today is if you say, if you were to go on most shows today and say, oh, there's different species of humans, you'd instantly be called a racist and sexist or anything. I mean, you would get nailed right away. And that's the part I have a problem today with people dealing with the concept of realism. Realism is based upon observing concrete facts that are not arguable. <laughs> you cannot argue there are different types of humans. And people want to argue that. And they want to argue differences between the sexes. They go, we're all the same. What in the world are you talking about? Men, male and female, are not only genetically different, they are biologically different. And that is fact. That is realism. I can't argue those facts. And that's where we're at. We're trying to change factual information to, to coincide with that tribal team mentality. And that's the problem I think we're stuck in today is we're picking teams. And instead of basing it on fact, we're basing it on some kind of faux ideology that most has no concept of reality. It, we're trying to put a square peg in a round hole, basically. And right. then we're going out and getting a sledgehammer and trying to force it. And if you don't agree with it, I'm going to smash you with a sledgehammer. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's where we're at today, I think. One thing I find to be helpful in this type of conversation, and it's a model that I, I use from Ken Wilber, he's an integral theorist, is an integral approach or an integrated approach that recognizes what you just said. You know, there are categories. The, the problem is that people make category errors, conflate everything down or narrow everything down to one type of category or male or female or black and white or gay or straight, yeah. as opposed to recognizing the totality of the, as much as we can, because we're only humans, the complexity of life. And when you, when you start recognizing the much more complexity of life, you can say, yes, Men or women are different at some level, biologically, genetically, brain-wise, and yet there are some similarities because they're within the same species. Yep, we're humans. All Still deserve humans. the same rights. They're, you know, if you're an American, at least that's the way our you know our founding fathers believed it, and, and it's being hopefully spread more widely, hopefully here in the states, but also globally. So you know, politically, we're all equal human beings. But that doesn't mean that we're not different as individuals to individuals and groups 
of individuals, other groups of individuals, like men and women, brain, genetics, et cetera. And, and we should, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. And it goes both ways. I'll give two examples. And this probably is going to cause people to have their heads explode and start yelling. But I'm going to give you two different examples. And this, if you don't like this, this show is not for you. Again, based in reality. Um, if you want to go pet bunny rabbits and chase butterflies and wish for unicorns, there's plenty of bullshit shows you can go listen to. This is not the place for that. But it's, I'll give an example of, let's say, a, the religious, the hardcore religious kind of fanatic. I don't want to use fanatic. But disciplined in their beliefs that you are not born gay, right? Their attitude is, I can change you. You're, they're fighting. They're looking at you and you're, they're looking at a person who is gay. We'll use that as an example. They're, they're not looking at it in reality. They're going, no, I see you and I'm trying, I want to bend you to my belief system. They're not based in reality. That person, that individual is gay. Plain as day. But they want, they, their attitude is, you can be reprogrammed and I can teach you not to be gay. The flip side is, right now with, the other side of the coin is the, the gay community saying either you're, you believe and you will bend to our definitions and our self-identification of like gender neutral. Gender neutral is not based in reality. That, that doesn't exist. It doesn't. You're either born with a penis or you're born with a vagina or there's two different, there are uh, herma hermaphrodites, right? Is that, is that yeah, a term? Yeah. Who are born with both. Very, very rare, right? They could define themselves probably as gender neutral. They're the only ones. Everyone else, your biology is your biology. And you don't, get the, you don't have the right to tell me how I'm going to identify you outside of reality. And if I don't do that, that I have somehow violated not only your legal rights, but your human rights. That's a far leap. And those are two far ends of the spectrum, right? And I think I use those and like I said, people are probably going to lose their shit over that. But those are two very good examples on two opposite ends or two flip sides of a coin. You know? Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm much more libertarian on so many issues. So my thing would be in terms of the second thing you just talked about, I don't like coercion. Um, I wouldn't want any laws forcing me to, to, to use words in certain ways that might offend or not offend someone. Mm -hmm. I am a passionate human being and I, and I attempt to be as compassionate and grow my compassion over time. And if someone wants to persuade me in a certain direction that, that certain things for them, how they want to operate in the world, okay, convince me that's the way you want it, want it to be and I'll support you as a free human being to do that. That doesn't change reality as you're suggesting yet. Now, the transhumanist movement will give us the technology where gender, I think, will be much more fluid because we will be able to affect genetics and that really? type of... Mm, that's true. ...on hermaphrodites or male or female. Um, but, you know, if someone as an adult wants to go from one gender to another... That's, you know, and they're a free human being, and they're not mentally ill, then they should be free in a free country to do that. That's, you know, as a libertarian, that's, 
I think they should be free to do that. I don't like, I do agree with that. I may, I want to jump in real quick. I do agree with that. What I was saying is like you, I don't want to be forced. And if someone comes to me and Hey, today, um, um, Jane, you're going to call me Jane today. Tomorrow you're going to call me John. Cause to tomorrow I feel like John. I'm gonna go, go screw yourself. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. That's just being absurd at this point. You know what I mean? And that's where we're getting to where people are trying to bend your will. And it's just like, I firmly believe in, in their right to do that. You just can't force me to go along with it. You know, yeah, I'm not going to correct us when it run them up. Yeah, I won't treat you any different. I'll treat you just like everyone else, but I'm not going to change and call you a different name depending on how you feel that day. That becomes ridiculous. And it's just like the, the uh, hardcore religious, depending on their numerous religions, but obviously that would be more based in Christianity, right? That you're not allowed to be gay. And that to me is like, no, they're gay. I'm not going to treat them any differently. They're a human. There's, it doesn't matter to me. You know what I mean? And I think people might confuse me with that. And I'm like, no, no, no. I just don't want to be told <laughs> and instructed how I will outside of the norm, right? Reality, right? Reality would say you have decided and you identify, you were born male, but you identify with being female. You tell me that, that's reality, right? I can't fight that. You have told me this. Now, the other part of reality would be I would go, well, no, you were born as a male. You have male genitalia. But you've told me. So now I, I've had to switch my reality because you've told me what you identify with. I'm good with that. I have a problem when you decide you're going to identify with anything you feel outside of any rational thought. You're just doing it basically as a game in a way. Because I, I, you know what I mean? It's, I know we've gotten off the rails with that one. <laughs> but it's hard for me to... To understand that type of either side of the thought process, I don't get it. Yeah, and I, and I, and I, I can see like with the first example in terms of uh, very conservative religious folks who, in their traditions and books, that you know there, there's a anti homosexuality impulse uh, within them, and you know, and, and on occasion they try to make a distinction between the sin and the sinner, not successfully so if you look at the rhetoric, but you know there is an attempt to do that in some cases. But I think if you're using reality as a test, as far as we understand reality at this time, you'll find homosexuality in animals outside of the human animal. Yep, absolutely. So if that's the case, it's not, you know, it's embedded somewhere in nature for some reason. And whatever, I think, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> a is A. Yeah. Um, you just have to accept that as part of reality. Um, and I'm, I'm always curious, you know, I wonder always why these prohibitions emerge in the first place, because they're usually for other reasons than pop popularly expressed. If you look at the historical documents and why things arose to begin with, I, I'm not an expert on theology in terms of Christian theology, so I'm not really sure why this arose. But it would be curious to talk to a you know, historical theologian who could say, the reason the prohibition against homosexuality with man versus man and man emerged was X, Y, and Z. That was a necessary historical phenomenon because of X, Y, Z, whatever that might be. I, you know, I'm curious, is why? 
just like in my tradition, Judaism, shellfish. You can't have shellfish. You're not supposed to have shellfish. It's not kosher. And you're not supposed to have uh, pork. Well, yeah. uh, you know, I have to imagine that historically there's very good health reasons yep. for those things that don't necessarily exist today, but at one point they did exist. Hmm, interesting. Why? Well, those are two food types that can cause pretty wicked poisonings. Exactly. <laughs> if, if, if eaten incorrectly and not properly cleaned. Yeah. And it's funny you say that is a lot of religions practices in those senses were, were built upon cleanliness and eradication and control of disease. Yeah, very true. Yeah. It, it, there's a dual side to it. Not only has it been brought in as a belief system, but it was actually rational in the sense that they had realized these foods or these items cause disease or sickness. Yeah. John Durant in his book, the paleo manifesto, which came out like probably about five, six, seven years ago, uh, did a really good job of actually explaining some of the health preserving practices and the rituals in Judaism, as an example, um, and, and how it actually protected certain Jews in Europe. But then he also, I think, if I remember correctly, points out how because they survived certain plagues more than the Christian neighbors, the Christian neighbors thought that the Jews were causing the plagues. So that was also a problem. But that's for another discussion. Yeah, maybe we'll do another one on that because I, 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 I've uh, read that book years ago. And I, yeah. now I, I'm starting. You're, you're totally right. I remember it was in there. Yeah. And, and, and we've gotten off a little bit on the free will side, but it all ties back together. And people, you need to go with the free flow. We are going to go in all kinds of different, <laughs> right but, but the free will and, and choice, the freedom, right? Again, it does relate because these individuals, even though pol polarizing views, they have that freedom. And I fully support that freedom to have those views, to live the life that they want. Again, though, they have, they're missing a very valid point of my definition, as long as it doesn't cause harm or inhibit others for, from pursuing their freedoms. That is the main caveat I have with yep. beliefs like this, is you're imposing your free will and your interpretation of freedom, but it's inhibiting mine in a sense, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good libertarian um, definition. That's why you want to limit the state so individuals yep. can use the state to push their particular morality against others who don't share that same belief system, whether and, it's religious or another belief system, it doesn't really matter. And I think all of us are born with, I shouldn't say all, most humans are born with the ability to differentiate between right and wrong. Hmm? Now, there are people who are broken. Um, there are cases where people have an inability to decipher between right or wrong. You know, that gets into the sociopath, the psychopath. They, they have differences in brain chemistry and sometimes even in brain structure that can inhibit them. But they have also found that there's false positives with that, that people who have the same bi biochemistry or brain chemistry or brain, similar brain kind of function do not become sociopaths or psychopaths. So it's very interesting. We do not understand. We're just scraping the surface of the human brain and understanding neuroplasticity because people will think that 
you know, we, we know for a fact that neurons don't regenerate for the most part. When they're gone, they're gone. There are some specific instances where they can be regenerated. But neuroplasticity is about the brain going through a different pathway when there's damage or something else happens. And it's basically the brain finding a different way. And that's why we have so many neurons, right? That we think is it's because it's like a backup system. So if something goes wrong in the human brain or we get an injury, that the brain has the ability to overcome that and, and by rerouting. You know, and I think we, have, we collectively have to be very careful when, when, not you and I, but just in general, when we make pronounce, pronouncements around the brain and specific behaviors. Yeah, because we don't know. Uh, I spent about uh, six years uh, in the quote-unquote anti-psychiatry movement doing some <laughs> policy work there. Uh, you know, and if you look at psychiatry as an example, the model, the medical model they use is, you know, there are certain limitations on, there's a couple of different models, but the your basic one is chemical imbalance as an example. But that's a model. It actually hasn't been proven. And to base a lot of our society choices on a model that has not been proven is problematic. Similarly, if you want to talk psychiatry, the, you know, the DSM-5, I was trained under the DSM-4. Yeah, me too. It's not scientifically sound. It's, you know, it's, it's culturally bound and determined at the time of its creation. And to, and to determine how people are going to be treated based on cultural forms as opposed to scientifically sound ones it can be dangerous. And my favorite example I used to give when I used to talk about this stuff, and we talk about homosexuality, uh, or let's talk about masturbation. <laughs> That's more fun. Yeah, you let's know. talk about yeah, something a little less polarizing <laughs> that we can all relate to, right? That's right. Uh, you know, that caused schizophrenia back in the day. You know, masturbation caused mental illness. And then at some point, culture evolved and recognized, well, no, actually, masturbation can be a cure for certain psychophysiological problems. So what happened that it became a cause of mental illness to a cure of some degree of quote unquote mental illness? You know, it's culture. Yeah. That's why it's dangerous to make determinations, uh, legal determinations, political determinations based on quote unquote science of psychiatry because psychiatry itself, unlike physical medicine, is really in its infancy. And although we have some really cool machines, you know, MRIs and other, other ways of tracking the brain, we really know very little at this time. Well, and I like to relate it to the universe, right? We know very, very little about the universe. We have ideas, but we don't know. And when you kind of put things in that type of perspective as well, and I try and do this. Uh, yes, I have certain opinions I try to base them factually, but also it's going to be a mix of experience and knowledge and philosophies. It's a whole host of things. And I try never to make hardcore, you know, delineate, just say, this is the way it is. I do at times and it's probably wrong, but <laughs> I also, you know, we all do it, but also I, anytime I find myself kind of wondering going you know what am i doing what's going on just go look at the universe and go you're floating around wow. a rock <laughs> in the middle of nowhere yeah uh, the, the earth is a rock that was developed by a bunch of other rocks colliding and gas and dust and it's this one little blip in 
beaches uh, or one grain in a million beaches. That's what our planet is. And we get so wrapped up into kind of that, like I said, teams and, you know, I'm right, you're wrong. And I just go, I just look at the universe, go, we don't know. I don't know. And I think that's where people confuse freedom and free will as you can do anything you want. True, but there are consequences. Oh, yeah, you yeah. can do anything you want. That is a fact. But you will have to reap the consequences of those actions. And today we've kind of nullified or dulled the consequences in society today. You know, social media is a perfect example. People go on social media and will act completely differently than they will in person. And why is that? Because their actions don't have repercussions that they do in person. You call me an asshole and call me all kinds of names on social media. There's nothing I can do about it. You call me that to my face, there's going to be a whole different reaction. And if I act that way, I would expect a different reaction too, right? Right. So we're kind of cutting off. And I, I think that's where people look at freedom run amok, right? That we have to control these actions. And humans have an inability to self-regulate when we get to large masses, right? Historically, tribes were 25 to 50 people max in general. Those are numbers that can be managed, self-regulated. Once you get beyond that, that's where bureaucracies start to come in. That's where, you know, uh, more of little steps of a system of people have different, you know, different powers. You know, you have more leaders, supposed leaders. You you'd also have more mediating institutions between you and your life. Yeah, there's, yeah, bigger buffers and bigger, bigger proxies and all kinds of things going on. And that's why I think we're fighting today and why I teach what I teach is, yeah, all, all I'm trying to do is gain more freedom in my life, freedom and happiness. That's my goal. And it's selfish because I want it, right? I'm fighting for it for myself first. And in the government, I had it flipped around. I thought my career in the government, I was fighting for everyone else's freedoms, correct? And that's what my job was to protect those freedoms. But actually, when you think of it, it's kind of backwards because that's an altruistic view. But altruism cannot work as a consistent philosophy because you, if you always put everyone else ahead of you and your own self-interest, you'll never survive because you never fix the things or work on the things that you need to fix in yourself. And so I try and find a balance in that now of where everything I do is to help other people. The simple life, the business I've created, everything mm -hmm. I do, it's to better humanity in some form. But it's also selfish because the first priority is I have to figure it out for me first. And then I take those lessons and I teach them. That's my personal freedom. And to continue to pursue that freedom, you know, where does it go? So it, it, it's, not, it's not just black or white. You're right. Freedom has gray areas because you don't know where it's going to take you or where it goes. It's a free-floating kind of definition, right? But freedom and, and free will are basically 
they're, they're captured within us, right? It's we choose, we make that choice. And today, I think what's happened is other people are making those choices for us. And we're not, we're realizing it, but we're not sure how to change it. Well, I actually suggest historically, we've always had, for the majority of us, for the majority of the time, other people, and, they, and not necessarily even consciously taking decisions on our behalf. I mean, I referenced the beginning of this conversation, the five or six day work week, the nine to 10 hour work day, the time people spend in traffic, you know, all, all those cultural forms are unquestioned for the most part in our society. They just are how things are. It's not that one person said we have to do it this way, kind of organically arose for various reasons, you know, from the transition from the agricultural to industrial age. Now that we're in the post-industrial information age, you know, we can start questioning some of the earlier forms like agriculture and and industrial age. And that's what you do. But, you know, I, I don't know if there's a, you know, there's some person or people that are actually pulling the strings. In most cases, I think it's just norms that have evolved over time that can be questioned. And unfortunately, most people do not question them. Well, and that is historically, too, in other countries and in other cultures, how freedom is eroded. It doesn't happen overnight. It's taken piece by piece. Slowly, it evolves over time, right? Until finally the masses go, enough's enough. And that's historically how almost every culture you, you study, how it's become that way, how socialism became, how tyranny, it became not overnight. It was a little chunk here and there, here and there, here and there, here and there. And that's just a natural progression. But what I w- want people to realize is even though we get upset and we get frustrated, we still live in the freest country on the planet. And I call it working within the system that we've been dealt. You can fight the system, bang your head against the wall, bitch and complain, or you can take the power back. And I teach taking the power back and God, people are probably gonna get sick of me talking about this, but it's the three-legged stool. Take back your health. Focus on your health, optimal health. Being financially free, meaning being debt-free not being a part of that system and finding your life purpose. You fix those three things and you will be freer than you've ever been before. And I've had some people go, Oh, Captain obvious. Duh. And I go, well, how many of those are you doing? And they look at me and they go, "Uh Oh, I go, yeah, I just called you out. You're, you're not doing any of them. And that I know. And I go, I'm no, no, I don't know you personally. I'm going statistically off just the average American. I go, most Americans are not doing one of those, let alone all three. You know, and, and what's, what I find to be helpful when I work with my clients, and we'll take your, your triad, the health, taking back your health, taking back your finances or financial freedom and finding your why. Uh, and I think what I might call deconditioning agents or cultural deconditioning agents can prove useful as you kind of figure each of those three things out, you know, how, how do you get away from SEAL fit? We call it your boo. 
background of obviousness. Oh, that's just the way you live. That's just the way you eat. That's just the way you think. Well, how do you kind of see that as a cultural phenomenon? Separate yourself from it and look at it more objectively and critically and say, well, wait, the way the government, their food pyramid, Madison Avenue and their television commercials tell me I should be living in terms of food or the certain drugs I should be taking for these particular conditions, is that really the best thing for me as a, as a, as a very individualized human being? And you take a critical eye to it, you go, wow, the USDA food pyramid or their plate, whatever we call it these days, is driven by industry interests, not by the best science. We know that to be true. The whole war on fat, as an example, was driven by industry interests that, uh, you know, between the corporate state, what I would call it, they get together and they screw you and they drive health costs up and health, health down. Uh, this financing, financial system is the same, whether you want to look at the Federal Reserve on fiat currency and boom-bust cycles, as an example. Uh, and we can also talk about your, your why. You know, why are you here? Our family of origins, our, our national and ethnic and religious uh, cultural forms guide us in certain ways. How can you look at them critically? Not to say they're wrong. You know, maybe, maybe, you know, some of your religious teachings and cultural, cultural forms from your family of origin, you know, good or bad, it is what it is. You look at them and you say, wow, do I really want to do X, Y, or Z? What am, what am I really here to accomplish? And when I work with clients, we actually do a deep dive. We call it one thing in three Ps. What's your purpose? What's your passions? What are your principles? You know, what kind of what guides you in terms of your principles in life? And they take a long time to decondition someone from their family of origin, upbringing, their various cultural and subcultural forces that tell you you should do certain things professionally. And to really look inside of yourself and say, you know, what do I want to accomplish here? What am I here to accomplish in my life? What's my inner drive? You figure that out and you organize your life around it. Your life shifts, but it's not easy to do. The health and the financing thing or figuring out what your why is. Well, and of course, I picked the three hardest, right? Yeah. Um, but because those have the most profound difference, they make the biggest change. And they're the, I call them the elephants in the room. You know, there's not an elephant. We have elephants. We got a herd rolling around and yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. can't even move. And people feel trapped. And I go, I'm giving you the, I'm just trying to relay the tools to you that the things you can change right now. Those three, you can definitely work on right now. And they don't cost you a dime. And people go, no, being healthy costs. I go, no, you're brainwashed. Being healthy is cheaper than being unhealthy. There is no yeah. money in healthy people. That is, that is a fact. The, you know, and our economy is based upon a consumer economy. Well, that yeah. means that it relies upon continual growth. Going back to realism, that is not a realistic view of economy. Economies cannot continue to grow indefinitely, permanently, forever. That is factually impossible. You cannot do that. The only way you can do that is what we're doing. Fiat currency, printing money, and continuing to have people grow the economy by consuming things they don't need. So even though it is continually growing on paper, it's only doing that because it's being manipulated. The natural forces of any economy is there's going to be expansion and contraction. 
that's just the way it works, <laughs> you know? And, and what yeah. I like to speak to that too is, is, you know, our economy, you, you always hear like, oh, it's doing well, it's doing well, the stock market's doing well, whatever. And I like to use the analogy of a drug user. A drug deal, user feels better when they're high. Yep. Then they feel like shit. Then they get high again, they feel good. Either way, they're still a drug user. You know, our economy is like on drugs. You know, the Federal Reserve can pump money into the system, makes, it, makes us feel good for a couple of years. It's still a drug. It's going to go away and we're going to feel like shit. And we're going to have to have some more, quote unquote, stimulus spending from the government or from the Federal Reserve or, you know, printing money from the Federal Reserve and stimulus spending from the government to make us, quote unquote, feel better. But it's all kind of bullshit. Eventually, you get to the point where the system collapsed, just like a drug user gets to the point where their collapse. Yeah. It's unsustainable, as you state. Well, and not only that, but and the reason why I teach those things in, in the financial piece is I've found it. I, I was very fortunate early in life. Well, I guess I, I grew up poor. So for me, I, I, I grew up with nothing. So having nothing's not a big deal to me, right? It's, mm. it's when you, I think when you grow up surrounded by all these uh, illusionary kind of things that you think are important, right? You know, that I've got a car that I can't afford. My parents bought me the best bike. They paid for all of my college. You know, I got a brand new car when I was 16. Those kinds of things. They, they create this unrealistic reality of, for me, I didn't get those things. So if I have to go back to zero, it's nowhere near trauma as traumatic as it is to those people, which is kind of the average person today. In, in a sense, I'm, I'm totally generalizing, mm -hmm. but you know, for me, I tell that, that what that lesson taught me is that as long as I can be financially free, which means being debt free, having a year of savings, always improving myself, my business, my ability, if my business goes under, I can go out and get a job within seven days. I'm always, I'm making myself to the point where I, I, it's almost impossible for me not to be able to make it right. I'm always trying to better myself, make mm -hmm. myself, an, uh, make myself a, a benefit, right? I'm a benefit to the people who will hire. I'm a benefit to the people who buy my products. That's what I do. Well, what that does is it removes a ton of that pressure that most Americans suffer from today. You know, I live here, you know, in my house on the hill you know, off grid, you know, I own yep. it. I don't, I don't make payments on it. I don't have a loan. It's beautiful. It is the, the, the least amount of stress that I've experienced since I was probably 10, <laughs> you know, nice. it's nice. a totally yeah. different world because I don't have the same pressures and the same stresses that the average American has. And I'm not saying I'm any better. That's not what this is about. What I'm saying is once you remove those things from your life, your life starts to take, it starts to define itself. Things start to become clear. The things that are important, you know, being as healthy as you can be, being the best father, being the best mother, being the best son, being the best friend, being the best, you know, steward to, you know, nature, all these things, all those start to focus in and people are all 
I never thought of it that way. I go, because we've removed ourselves and we've removed ourselves as humans. We, we don't even, most people do not realize, realize they're an animal. They have totally disengaged humans from everything else. And I always teach, I go, if I was to dump you in the middle of the forest somewhere that's pretty much untouched by humans, you would soon realize how fragile human beings are. And they are not at the top of the food chain. They are not yeah. the apex predator. We, uh, I'm, yeah, there's I'm a lot of the term um, Nassim Talib talks about anti-fragile. And the way you talk about the way you've organized your life, you've made yourself anti-fragile. You're resilient, uh, which is awesome. And, uh, you know, a, a great model for other people. That's why they should be reading your books for sure. Um, but, you know, something you just brought up, I think, I think it would be good to do a deep dive in, you know, humans as animals and the fact that we've artificially created environments which are not conducive to human health and well-being. Yeah. Not that we have to drop in the middle of a, you know, desert or wooded area and see if we can survive because most of us wouldn't. But it doesn't mean that we can't reflect more deeply on our place in nature and how it is important that we think about how we can organize our lives that supports our own health and well-being by changing the environment, changing it in such a way that it's not destructive to the long-term sustainability of the earth and, and, and the environment, but is actually conducive to regeneration of the environment. You know, I'm one of the things I think is fascinating is the biophilic movement is like, you know, how do you bring nature into cities and towns? Yeah. Because you know the positive health benefits of greening your house or greening your place of work or greening a town, uh, you know, improve immune function and cognition and all that kind of good stuff. And we're just learning. We're really like at the tip of the iceberg of, of the benefits of being embedded in nature, as opposed to these completely artificial environments and, Speaking of artificial, you know, one of the things that I have my clients track is their use, of, their use of artificial disruptors, what I call artificial disruptors, which is anything from light. You know, it, you know, if we look at how we've evolved um, the day-night, the day-night light-dark cycles, we disrupt them because we have artificial light. Now that's cool. Like I'd rather have artificial light than not although we can have a better choice of the kind of artificial lights we have. But we also, there's consequences to that. Because yeah. then you have disruptive circadian biology and the whole host of negative health consequences because, you know, we can stay up all night long on our phones and on our computers and doing all kinds of crazy shit at night when, when ultimately most of us should be sleeping at yeah. some point <laughs> in that period of time. And the same thing with our food. And you talked about one of your three pillars is food. You know, the, the artificial nature of most of the food that most people eat is destructive to human health and well-being generationally. I mean, whatever mothers are eating, even before they conceive, yep. is going to have a negative effect on the babies. Same with the father and the sperm and, the, you know, the, prior to conception of the baby. And then obviously the baby is affected and they'll affect the, the next generation of, of their own children and their own children's children, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we don't take those things into consideration, let alone the negative environmental consequences of the food choices, quote unquote, food choices we make and how destructive it is to the environment, oceans and rivers. I mean, we, from what I understand, there are whole sections of the Mississippi River down towards the Gulf that are dead. Yeah. Because of the, yep. the runoff. Sure. Yeah. From the, these large, big business farms. Well, in, 
what's happened is it, it's come to, and I talk about this a lot too, is greed and, and not doing the right thing. And we are humans. We're flawed. We're, we're terribly flawed. Yeah. But we have the ability to decide to do the right thing. And I talk about the principles I talk about if you, because people always go, well, what's the answer? How do we change this? I go, you change it within yourself first. You know, when you're doing wrong, you know it. And trust me, I know when I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. And for me, I've got the worst guilty conscience. I'm terrible. I'm just awful. Are you Jewish? Oh, I should be. I not. It's the Irish somehow. I don't know oh. how that turned into it, but right. you know, and everything I tried to, you know, where a lot of it came from though, so. was, was investigating white collar criminals. Oh. Um, going from more traditional law enforcement, military into white collar criminals, it gave me this different psychological perspective and kind of, uh, kind of diagram of crime and doing wrong. Because a lot of white collar criminals are your next door neighbor and you'd yeah. never know it. You'd never have a clue. And that's why I have to turn it off. I can walk up to someone and as soon as they tell me what they do for their business or livelihood, I go, oh, because <laughs> <laughs> I could see right through it. I know what they're doing. And, but most people never see that. And what I found with the white collar criminals, and many of them were multimillionaires uh, that I investigated in, most of them got off because there's a different criminal justice system for rich people. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I just got into that with a guy named Caleb, Caleb Franz of uh, Mill Liberty. Me and him talked. And we talked about the broken criminal justice system. But for me, I think what it did is it taught me a lesson of most of these people were miserable. Because they had no true friends. I got to see all their emails, all their communications, you know, who they were making phone calls to. I saw it all. I saw everything, their daily lives. I got to read it inside out. And it was disturbing. They had no true friends. Their friends were other criminal associates. So none of them trusted each other. They were always ripping each other off and always looking over each other's shoulders and then if someone got caught, he would rat them all out and everyone was afraid. And it was just this life of, I went, why would you want to live that way? And the funny thing was they all had, uh, um, they all had their, they donated to charities and it was this weird dichotomy of they, they had to do good because they knew they were doing bad, but also mm. it was a tax write-off. And also it was a way to get, get the uh -huh. heat off them. You know, it was just go, oh, but they contribute all this money to this great charity. And interestingly enough, most of them had uh, their own nonprofit charities. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, that's why me and nonprofits, when I see that, I go, <laughs> boy, that's a sure. I shouldn't tell you about my nonprofit then, huh? Well, no, I mean, when they get big, I mean, there's a lot that you just go, a lot of them are, money laundering criminal enterprises yeah, I know. um I know. but not all god don't place don't do that well you, um, you'd actually like the the one i i co-created back in 2006 it was uh in my policy space it's called a liberty coalition and it ended up being a coalition of about 96 groups across the political spectrum working on civil liberties you know opposition to the patriot act and this various various surveillance powers of the federal government and real ID or what I prefer to call the national identification system. You know, so it was a pro fourth amendment group, not a money laundering group. 
The Patriot Act was meant to protect me. What are you talking about? I don't get it. You mean, section 215, section 505. Uh, what do you mean? You can uh, search and seize my, my, uh, my property without having a search warrant. What's, what could go wrong with that? I don't understand. You can spy on me without without any cause. What administrative subpoena? You can just have the guy sign off on it without a you know, judge, judge's approval, or we can talk about the FISA court. But we will, we will, we will that sometime. <laughs> yeah, uh, I tell people this podcast will never be purely about politics ever. But okay, but to get into some of the things you talk, we talk about politics are involved. I mean, you right. can't you can't escape it. But I don't want it to define. I don't want it to define people and the show because that's a chapter I have that I include as political tribalism. Well, and you know, a segue back to freedom and liberty then. Yeah. We could talk about the, the corporate, corporate state surveillance system. Yeah, we got on a tangent again. Um, that, uh, you know, are being created and enhanced with the, you know, increased technology, which track our every movement. And uh, in the, in the, in the, more of the corporate space, uh, try to influence to buy certain things, either ideas or goods or services. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's data mining one oh one. That's what it What's is. That? Data mining one oh one. That's yeah. all it is. Yeah. yeah. And, and you're right. And see my problem, I have a real problem with, with big government and big corporate America yeah. because at the core of them is greed. It has nothing to do with bettering humanity and our place and lot on earth. Got problems with that. And I'm going to probably take a lot of heat down the road, but not, not like, you know, Zuckerberg's listening to this podcast or anything, or, you know, uh, uh, you know, no executives at Microsoft and Apple. But my problem with those companies is, they talk about doing good and I'm not saying everything they do is completely evil and bad, mm-hmm. but what I talk about, and I, I did this, I looked up the top, the top 10 richest people in, in America. Cause I wanted to see the baseline of how much money it is. It's a lot of money. It's a lot. <laughs> and see to me, billionaire doesn't, it's, I can't conceptualize billionaire in my minimalist kind of egalitarian mindset. Billionaire makes no sense to me. It is so beyond your, uh, the needs of your ability to provide for your family and others. It, it doesn't make sense to me. It just doesn't. How you would want to accumulate a billion dollars besides to gain power and to get it through greed. I'm not saying all billionaires are evil. God. Um, right, right. But what I'm saying is what I tabulated, if just these basic, I'm going to do an episode on this. If they just contributed 1% of their net wealth, the 10 richest people in the world, because they all talk a really good game. They run their mouth a lot. And I have a problem with this. They run their mouth, but they don't do any action. And it's all, they need to take a deep look at themselves because they are not doing good for humanity. They need to take that money, put it where their mouth is and start helping people. The people who cannot help themselves. I'm not a handout. I'm a hand. I'm not a, you know, a handout, but a hand up guy. If you're putting in no effort to try and better yourself, deal with the consequences. I, you know, too bad, you know, suck it up, buttercup. You, you put yourself there, deal with it. But there's a lot of people who are looking and 
are looking to get out of the situation they're in, better themselves. Well, two big problems we have today is health and, uh, um, you know, the biggest one's health. I mean, I want to, I, 1%, if they took 1%, they could build thousands of healthcare clinics and, and like YMCA-ish or health clinics, you know, they could build thousands of those. Yeah, but let me let me actually speak to that because one of my concerns would be that they would create conventionally oriented healthcare clinics, pushing drugs, radiation, and surgery. And, and I'm not opposed to drugs, radiation, and surgery if it's the last resort, as opposed to you know how can we help promote human health and well-being towards optimization of human health and well-being? That's where our medicine should be oriented towards, as opposed to symptom management for the benefit of pharmaceutical companies, doctors, and other similar oriented institutions. Well, that therein lies the problem, right? They became ridiculously rich on picking our carcass. <laughs> that's what they, yeah. a lot of them, that's how they made their money is they made us buy products or additional products that we don't need. And you're right. For them to do that, and that's what I mean, that's where the disconnect is. The reason they will not do that and they'll just continue to run their mouths is because they're into preservation. They could care less about the rest of us. They're just trying to preserve their own wealth and be at the top of the food chain. That's all they care about. I hate to be that way, but I'm sorry. They're, most of these no, people are terrible I, human beings. I, I, I generally agree, but I'm not a redistributionist, so I don't want the state going in there. And I want to force them money and give it to other people. They should be able to do this willingly and they should yeah. gladly do it because it's for the betterment of humanity. But they, they, the reason they don't do it is because they can't figure out how to make a profit off it. <laughs> I mean, ironically, right? And, you're, and if they did do it, you're right. They would just bring in every pharmaceutical company and they would do the exact same thing that is causing us harm today. And that's a tough one for me, right? Uh, for a guy who w wears his, his emotions on his sleeve, a guy like me, it really hurts me. I just go, what are we doing? doing to ourselves why are we this way to each other why do we do this i don't have the answer i don't know and we got to fix it though we really do and but i just i don't know what the answers are but i'm trying to and, and people like you and me what well, i think what our goal is is to give our little couple pinches of positive change spices into the pie right I'm right, right, right. to help people because the only way we're going to do it is if we do it on a, on a personal level and then expand it through our family and communities ground up. Yeah. I, I think there are two things that are useful that I think that both of us do and others kind of in the circle do in the post-conventional space. We offer a legitimate critique of the conventional systems, whether corporate state, corporate state, or, you know, other institutions, which, you know, maybe served us well when they're first generated generations ago, but obviously no longer serve us now. Uh, and then offer other other visions of what's possible for similarly oriented institutions which operate differently and or I mentioned earlier mediating institutions you know like we can and I think it'd be important to talk about that some of the technology now allows us to get rid of the mediating institutions and go direct peer to peer yes. yeah you know, um, you, you had to go see a doctor to get medications and for you know in many in most cases that's probably a smart thing to do. But I always thought it was interesting that at one point you had to go see a doctor to get Advil or whatever the whatever it was called at, at that time. 
ibuprofen. And then all of a sudden at 12.01 a.m., uh, some date, the American people became really brilliant and you could buy it over the counter. Well, no, American people didn't become really brilliant. It had nothing to do with the intelligence of the American people. It had all to do with politics slash economics. Yep. So if you can pull a drug away from a doctor and allow an individual to buy it over the counter. It's much more profitable. Maybe we should actually allow more people to purchase drugs over the counter and not have to go to a doctor. And let me, and I talk, tell this to my wife all the time. When you think about a drug, besides all the side effects and the fu fucking crazy commercials you have to watch all oh, the time. God, the commercials but are mind numbing today. You pay for it three times. Basic R&D through NIH grants, which pays for the basic yeah. development of a lot of these drugs that we now take, right? So you pay for it one time. Then you have to go see a doctor. So you have to pay the doctor as the gatekeeper. Then you actually have to go buy the drug. So you're actually paying for it at least three times. So can we get rid of some of those, that as an example in healthcare, those mediating institutions so you can buy it more directly. I say yes, and I think over-the-counter is an example. Or in the natural health movement, there's plenty of examples. I'm talking about marijuana, person-to-person, -person, or psychedelics, person-to-person, -person, or plant medicine, not necessarily specific psychedelics, but herbal plant medicine. You know, So there, there are ways of getting around the mediating institutions of the corporate state to directly influence positively your health and well-being. I mean, and the same with banking. You know, there, I think technology is going to allow us to bypass these large corporate banks, too, eventually. Education, same thing. Maybe we don't have to go to Harvard or Yale or wherever to get allegedly a great ed education. But we can talk about that another time because I question that as just a, not a fact. Um, it's just a cultural belief system. But, you know, education now can become more individualized thanks to technology and the decentralization of thanks to homeschooling and de-schooling and unschooling of these type of movements that allow us to bypass, once again, the corporate state institutions. Well, and I think that's what we're, we're talking about. And even though people are probably lost at this point, but you know, it, it is that what we're saying is you have to look at, instead of looking at the lack of opportunity, you have to look at the opportunity in a different light. It's all there. It's all in front of us. There are tons of tools for us to step outside of the, quote, system. And once you, and I, I, I try to tell people, too, that I'm not just highlighting the negative. What I'm telling you is you need to, I'm a why guy. You can't do the how before the why. You got to know the why. Why is the system set up this way? How does it, then how does it work? Once you understand those, you don't feel trapped because you go, oh, okay, all right, I get it. I, I just yeah, got to yeah. do this, 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 and this, and that will make me avoid this, this, and this. And I can live the life I want within these boundaries. And that's what I had to learn. You know, I had to get beat up. There was two things in the government that drove me absolutely batshit bonkers. One was the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. Every government agency I worked for, especially the military, that was pounded in your head, right? Keep it simple, stupid. It was the most convoluted bullshit system that made absolutely no sense and was the farthest thing away from rational thought and simplicity. Everything was triplicate. Everything made no sense. And then the other one was, well, why am I doing it this way? 
because that's the way it's always been done. Those two yep. things in the, drove me to insanity. And what it taught me though, when I left is I went, I'm never living my life that way again. Right. I will do things simply, rationally, and I will change the things when they need to be changed for the better. And I kid you not, it, I had to really unbrainwash myself and figure out what was the path to that. And I wish I had a golden answer. I mean, I'm trying to teach it the best I can, but it's about that. It's about taking the information you're giving, learning all the time. Cause that's another thing. If you're not learning, you're dead. Human beings, you need to learn till the day you die. It's just part of the deal. It's like retirement, right? We've been told you work now. It's like 50 years or tell you pooping in your diaper basically you grow up pooping in one you die pooping in one horrible way of living but we've taught that that you need to look forward to retirement then you can enjoy your life then you do not you ask people what they're going to do in retirement i'm going to play golf and go to the beach i'm going to fish and <laughs> you know okay <laughs> you can only do that so much and you're going to be bored to shit you know you're going to have to do something and i think that's another thing we have failed in a sense, too, that just because you're going, as long as you're alive, you're going to be living and you need to continue to pursue bettering yourself, bettering the things around you until you take that last breath. Instead of looking for, I'm going to kill myself in this system, in this reality, which I did not create. I had no say so in this whatsoever, in the creation of it. Um, that once that's done, then I'm going to do what I want and I'm going to check out. Yeah. It's a completely backwards process of how humans work and interact. You know, one of the people I really enjoy listening to is Peter Diamantis. He's the, one of the founders of the X prize. And I listen to his podcast, uh, not as much as I'd like to, but you know, one of the exercises that he and his co-host talk about doing is, is asking when, you know, when, how long do you want to be on this earth for? And recognizing the advances in science, what might that look like? So, you know, you might say, let's say 130. And I, and I don't mean like you're in a wheelchair and oxygenated and, you know, half out of it. I mean, like quality of life till 130, whatever that might be. And then one of the things he talks about is work backwards. That's almost like three lifetimes. If you actually have three lifetimes, so it's not like you're going to retire when you're 65 and then die when you're 70 because you, know, you get bored of playing golf and, and fishing, you know, nothing left to do. If you start thinking like, wow, I have three lifetimes, that means you have, you have so many lifetimes of opportunities for education. You know, maybe the first time around you're like, wow, I'm going to become a lawyer. Cool. That's what you do. You study law and you become a lawyer. Next time around, because you have another 30, 40 years of productive life, maybe you want to study art and become an art historian. Cool. And maybe the next 30 years, you're like, wow, you know, medicine's kind of cool. We've got some cool advances. I want to go study medicine. And it doesn't have to be by 30 years. It doesn't have to be by 10 years. I mean, you can mix and match and move things around. My only point is I really like what you said. And you integrate that with what Peter Diamantis talks about. Like, you know, if you have that much time, assuming there's no accidents and, you know, unforeseen things that might occur that kill you, you know, it gives you a lot of play space. Like, wow, yeah. I can really design my own life be a lifelong learner and explore all these different things that have always interested me as opposed to, oh, I'm limited to one path and then a little bit of free time until I die once I retire. That's bullshit. Well, I consider myself a generalist. Uh, I have a lot of interests. You know, I have a lot of things that I like to do. Mm -hmm. 
and it's been proven. And I've I, being that I used to be in athletics and used to coach and and work with athletes, I dealt with parents who who got into this cycle of their kids, you know, especially in baseball, baseball's pride and soccer, the two biggest ones with all the leagues and everything. These kids literally play baseball or soccer all year long. And the parents are, there going to go to college. They're going to get a scholarship in, in such and such. What I found with these kids and I'd warn them, I go, you need to get these kids into something else. And they go, what do you mean? I went, I grew up playing different sports, different seasons. By the time I was done with football, I was burned out on football. I was ready for basketball. By the time basketball ended, I was sick of basketball. I was ready for baseball. When summer hit, I trained for all three. That's what I did, you know? And I go, what they've proven is, you know, the an anomaly is a kid who does nothing but one sport and becomes very great at it. Tiger Woods is one of them. Yeah. Uh, that's not realistic. Most of your best athletes are multi-sport athletes who excel in the sport they play. And that's because it's continuing to learn, evolve, teaching different motor skills, different, yeah. different strategy. Yeah. And that's why I tell people what we're stuck in as human state, we're stuck in a rut. We're basically taught to do one thing for the most part, consume. That's what we're taught. When you look at what we do in this country today, when you boil it down to the nuts and bolts, it's consumerism and it's killing us. It's slowly killing us. It's, it's taking away our, our happiness to live life. It's taking away from the relationships in our lives, you know, our family. And when, when you look at it, I don't, and people think I go, I'm saying, don't buy anything. You know, I go, no, no, no. It has to be a tool. And there are things you buy for enjoyment. But most of it should be a tool to better your life. It's like me working. I, I'm doing this experiment. I'm working a year straight. And people go, that's what a fucking hypocrite this guy is. No, I enjoy what I do. <laughs> We're doing this on a Sunday. I created my podcast because A, it was time. And B, I wanted to learn more. I'm being selfish. This podcast is for me to learn. But also the flip side of that is other people are going to learn. And again, it's going from me bettering myself in order to better others. And I think once we get out of that kind of groundhog day kind of thought process, right? That life is about living to the very end. Heck, today, I can't even check out. There's laws against me checking out on my own terms. You know, if I want to yeah. go out in the woods and, and, or go dose myself with the syringe, I've broken the law. That's my choice. How dare you tell me how and when I can die? That's my choice, not yours. And you know, that was an extreme example, but that's the, the eroding of our freedoms. We're, we're the, and I'll flip back. I'll, hold on. I got to get this out. Is it flips back to consumerism, right? Because they don't want me telling, checking out when I want to check out because there's a shitload of money involved in me not being able to check out when I want, right? Think That's of true. that. Yeah. They're keeping me alive. They're keeping us alive as long as they possibly can because they've put dollars and cents to us living longer. Not happiness. It's about money. Make more money off me living longer. 
You know, I, I, I also like to do a kind of a deeper dive. You talked about uh, sports, uh, multi, multiple sports um, that you did versus, you know, a child doing one sport consistently, assuming that they're not the Tiger Woods or, you know, of that sport, you know, as you said, most are not. I'd even go a little bit deeper than that, if that's okay to do a dive there and then come back to consumerism. You know, one of the things that I, I've studied with uh, Erwan LaCour from MoveNet, and even training in a particular sport, which we see a lot of kids doing, or even a couple different sports we see kids doing, is not necessarily the best foundation for them in terms of their movement of their physical body and time and space over the long haul. You know, they're setting themselves up for a lot of physical problems. And if you study how children move naturally before kind of culture takes a hold of them and puts them into very specific movement patterns, most of them unhealthy, I would say, and, and I'm following kind of on Erwan's lead this way, mm -hmm. that, you know, we should also rethink not only consumer habits that we inculcate children in, not only think how we educate them, or in most cases, um, indoctrinate them, but we should also think how we create the space for them to move. Yeah. Or in most cases, a lack of healthy movement in our lives. I mean, you look at schools, government schools, you know, PE, if they even have it anymore, art, if they even have it anymore, music, if they even have it anymore, because they're training towards the test. So the, the county looks good on national scores as opposed to teaching children a few really important things like think clearly and rationally, understand history so they don't hopefully make the same mistakes as our ancestors have made and learn from the traditions of our ancestors and progress away from the limitations of those same traditions. You know, but also like art and science, ways of thinking and being in the world, music, touching the soul through music, movement, physical education, great playing volleyball and football. Okay, that's awesome. I think we should do more of that. How about just learning how to inhabit the body and move freely in a strong, functional body? We don't, yeah. that's nowhere being taught. Well, and with those uh, parents, I would get some of their kids kind of for a physical therapy side too, because they'd be injured and they'd come to me and go, hey, my kid did this and you know they had to have surgery. And it, it was basically a wear injury. Because these kids weren't getting a break. And I warned parents, I go, he can't play baseball all year long. There's got to be gaps in there. There's got to be times to recover. They're kids, they're growing. There's already a lot of stress on their joints. And you're just adding to it. These kids are not getting a break. And that was part of it. And yeah, it's just the easiest way to erode freedom too is to inhibit your ability to pursue passionate creativism is the best way to put it that those those what would be considered liberal arts right you know music poetry drama you know people frown upon those i make fun of them sometimes too but i'm a creative guy i go if you're pursuing those in and getting 100 grand in debt and expecting to go out and be able to pay that debt back you're dreaming i don't tell you not to pursue those you just don't need to pursue them in, at harvard <laughs> if your family <laughs> lives in Podunk, Iowa, and you had to borrow all the money to do it, 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 that's a bad idea. I'm all for the creative arts. I'm all for physical education. I'm all for you pursuing your passion, but I'm also for you using rational thought and planning with it. And 
you're right with with the athletic stuff and i'm a big fan of movenet i i interviewed him years ago um nice nice when they first started and and you're right and for me it's nature i live in nature i love living in nature but you don't have to do you don't have to live like me to live this lifestyle you know a, a good side side effect of what living this way is i've never been sick up here in 6 years i've never gotten a cold never gotten sniffles Soon as I head south for the winter, within two, three weeks, I get sick. To this day, never been sick up wow. here. Because less stress, I'm in a cleaner environment, less populated. I'm around trees, which are cleansing the air all the time. I drink natural water out of, you know, an aquifer, out of my well. You know, it's just a totally different lifestyle. And it's, it's congruent with human you know, uh, progression and, and being physically fit. It fits what my body was intended to intake and do. And I think that's what we're, we miss a lot of too, is understanding what the human body requires and what it needs. And what we're being done is we're told in the, in the big food industry, big pharma industry, big medical industry, we're being told what our body needs instead of, and it's, a, it's the typical... Instead of finding the root cause, treating the symptom. Yeah. Our root cause is we've lost touch with what the human body was meant to do and consume. And I always use the, the very simple analogy. I use it the same one. I go, if you're dropped in the woods, what are you going to eat? What are you going to do? How are you going to get your physical activity? That's what you need to look at. That's what the human body was meant to do and consume. And people go, it can't be that simple. I need Gatorade. I need a electrolyte. <laughs> I, you know, I, I need my, I need my uh, ketone powder. I need, no, you don't. No, you don't. That is bullshit. You get your electrolytes through water. Clean water has all the electrolytes you need in it already. <laughs> you know, and they're all, huh? What? I go, if you're an athlete, just go out and try and get some clean mineral water. It will do wonders. It will work far better than Gatorade, which is infused with every chemical known to man and is, you know, it has no purpose, really. Gatorade is one of the most amazing products ever made to dupe humans. It has no benefit. Zero. It does not help with hydration. It does not give the electrolytes that are contained in it are all synthetic, most of them. You can't get them into your bloodstream quick enough to make a difference. <laughs> it, it's, it's like, oh, Lord, we're so stupid. Do you ever track the work of Russ Green? He's a policy guy for CrossFit. No, I do not. Hey, let me recommend you and your, and your listeners do so. He, he does a great job of going after things like, and CrossFit does the same thing, you know, kind of the, the, the gator raids of the world and, and all that kind of good stuff. And, some of these uh, physical fitness institutions, which do their best to restraint the trade, restraint of trade, and protect themselves, and the crony capitalism between them and the federal government is really disturbing. He he does a really nice job of tracking all that stuff, and just to point and supporting what basically what you're saying. A lot of the stuff that's marketed to be healthy for us is bullshit, and actually has no good science behind it, and in fact is detrimental to our health and. You know, and I can see why so many people are confused because oh, yeah. there's so many mixed messages. But I think you know, one of the benefits, and you and I talk about this, you know, out of the paleo movement, as an example, yeah. is just ask 
the question you asked, what did our ancestors eat? How did they survive? Clean air, clean water, food that was non-artificial. <laughs> Good hygiene when needed, not three yeah. times a day, scrubbing myself with every known chemical known to man. Exactly. And not to say that we shouldn't take advantage of, of technology and, and the, the things we've learned about, uh, you know, uh, hygiene. So, that, you know, so, so, you know, we can, it's not that we have to live in a cave. We can live in a modern society, but take advantage of ancient wisdom, you know, both evolutionary wisdom of how we evolved to live over tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands and millions of years, but also from the wisdom traditions. You know, one of the, I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, my, my graduate work was in transpersonal psychology. My postgraduate work was in somatic psychology, but in transpersonal psychology, we study the wisdom traditions of the various religious systems. Okay. You know, all, the, all the religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Zen, um, Hinduism, you know, every, every religion, mainstream religions, have practices, mostly esoteric practices, so they're not done by all the members of the, or followers of a particular religion, that alter one's consciousness, open the mind, open the heart, free the body. You know, that's, a lot of these tools are available to us. That's the third eye, right? The pineal the third eye. Well, and that's what's, what's amazing about, you know, these practitioners from hundreds and thousands of years ago were aware of physiological processes. You know, they didn't call it what we call it today, but they're aware that certain practices induce certain states of consciousness, had certain physiological effects, which were positive. Now, Western science is naming them and describing how it works, understand the mechanism of action. But yeah, you, you know, you, you could affect the brain through certain breathing practices that you find in the yoga tradition, as yeah, an example. Slowing your heart rate. Yeah. Exactly. Meditation in Buddhism, as an example, you know. Well, and it's, it's, just it's funny you mentioned that, though, because you're totally right. And, and what has happened is what, what's the argument, the counter argument when you get to that from, from big pharma, big food, big industry? Well, humans didn't live that long back then. We've progressed way further than that. And they take out the only reason we didn't live that long. First of all, our lives were arduous. They were hard for sure. But our, our uh, infant mortality rate was far beyond what it is now driving those numbers far lower. And not only that, but a broken ankle can exactly. be the end of you. I mean, yeah. you, you yeah. can't run, you're done. <laughs> if you were a big 350-pound, yeah. five-foot-five blob, you were just a tasty, tasty meal to a lot of predators because you were going to get eaten. There was no chance for you. You couldn't be fat <laughs> back then. It was, it was physically inhibitive and survival inhibitive to be obese. Yeah, there, there's a great book I read years ago, and I come back to it every couple of years, called Manthropology. And uh, it, it looks like at, at the physical strength and capabilities of our early ancestors prior to the, mostly prior to uh, agriculture, the agricultural, you know, so hunter gatherers, early agricultural and how strong and powerful we were compared to today. Now, you know, maybe our brains are bigger so we can operate the technology in the industrial age and the post-industrial age. Actually, our, our cognitive function is What's that? Our cognitive function is lower. The, the statistics I remember, I may have these totally wrong, but I, I remember for the last hundred years, I believe our brain has shrunk almost 
Huh. I think, yeah, I, well, it could have been a bad study. I just remember that one stuck out in studies. You know, I've got to take those with a grain of salt. Um, right, 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 right. But think of, and, and there's good examples of this. There are many, many societies that were around five, 10,000 years ago that were so advanced that we can't figure them out. <laughs> yeah. Newman has no clue yeah. how they built their structures, yeah. the pyramids, and how they were able to move 100 ton rocks. Yeah. We have no idea. Graham Hancock, I think that's his name. He does a lot of writing on the, on the ancient yeah. civilizations. And it's fascinating. It leaves you like going, holy moly, what the hell happened? <laughs> their, their knowledge of, of, uh, of, uh, you know, of, uh, you know, the celestial, you know, yeah. interpretations of everything. I mean, they knew when the seasons were going to change by the solstice, by they had, you know, things arranged so that they were sundials and it was, it's insane. I mean, the knowledge in everything they did, and there was a lot of mysticism. Don't get me wrong. You know, the human sacrifices and all that was a, interesting. But to realize, and that's, again, a problem I think we face today, is we think we're just so much smarter and so much more advanced, and we're not. Well, let me give you the prime example of something I like to point out, which I have no idea how this works. The plant medicine ayahuasca used by shamans in South and Central America, right? Being used for hundreds, if not thousands of years. These are two plants that shamans put together that cause a hallucinogenic effect. One is an MAO inhibitor, which keeps the enzymes in your stomach from destroying the psycho, psychedelic or psychoactive part of the other plant. Now, these guys, didn't, guys and gals didn't have microscopes and scientific tools to figure out like, oh, if we put these two things together, this is going to have this particular effect on the brain. And, and, and diminish the negative effect in the gut through, you know. Well, not only that, the pre preparation, right? They have to grind the leaves. They have to, boil. it's the root and the leaves, right? Or is it two mm -hmm. different plants that are combined? It's, it's two different plants. One, one is an MAO inhibitor, so it doesn't get destroyed in the gut. And the other plant is the cycle, from what I understand, hopefully this is true. The other plant is, has this, um, the DMT, the dimethyl. DMT, which is in our bodies anyway, in, in yeah. almost everything. We are, we yeah. are holders and possessors of a uh, schedule, is a schedule one drug. So well, SBDA, I'm a holder of all kinds of uh, yeah. psychi psychotropic drugs inside my chemistry. So, Yep. Pineal gland is one of the glands that uh, I believe. Uh, I believe you're right. Is active in that space. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, again, of, of our freedoms being taken away. You know, I, I gave this example, me and uh, Caleb talked about this, of the cocoa plant. I can't even chew a cocoa leaf. I can't grow it in my own yard. We have plants that are Schedule 1 illegal that have been used for thousands of years. <laughs> but until the drug companies can, and the government can figure out how to make money off them, I can't have them. I can't buy them. I can't grow them. I can't do anything. That to me is criminal. And in inhibiting, as long as I'm not, again, my definition of freedom again, if I'm not harming anyone, who cares? If I want to go chew on some cocoa leaves and go work in my yard, who gives a shit? You know what? Well, I'll tell you who gives a shit Starbucks. <laughs> True. Good point. Yes. And the corporate interests who sell us legally, uh, you know, uh, nervous system altering stimulants. And the reason marijuana was illegal for the longest period of time, besides racism, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons for racism. Yeah, that's true. 
is, you know, because we only want to alter our consciousness with alcohol. Well, the uh, history so of like, hemp and marijuana, if we could tell our listeners one thing, go look up the history of marijuana and hemp and how they became illegal. It'll blow your mind. Yeah, Absolutely blow your mind. Based on racism and yep. uh, greed and industrialism. Yep, exactly. Uh, and, you know, and look, you, you, we talk about this, the psychedelics as an example. You know, I mentioned way earlier that there are tools for deconditioning us. And psychedelics, if used appropriately, are great cultural deconditioning agents. They allow you to see how you've been indoctrinated by certain cultural forms. Well, no wonder they were criminalized in the late 60s, early 70s. You know, they were, they were a threat to the conventional society. You know, I, I, I mentioned Timothy Leary. We can put him aside. We, we can speak, you know, t- tuning in, turning on, dropping out. Well, you know, people start dropping out of the conventional society and, and questioning authority and creating new social forms. That's a threat to the corporate state. No wonder psychedelics at that time were criminalized. Fortunately, you know, due to, due to Rick Doblin and, and MAPS and, and others, we have a lot of good research going on legally, you know, uh, legal research in MDMA and LSD and psilocybin. DMT here in the States, and they're, they're once again proving the benefits to mental health and physical health, too, of these medicines. Hopefully, you know, forces of, uh, of uh, quote-unquote evil don't come back and force these things back underground because, you know, we have human suffering, and anything we can do to limit or reduce human suffering, I think we should look into, at least explore, research, better understand. Oh, I agree. And, you know, it's funny you say that because I've been doing something for the last year. Uh, when I, when I, when I start to fall asleep, when I catch that kind of in between as I'm dropping out, I force myself back up because I start having visions. I start having interesting introspections and I see things that I, that not always make sense. But the, I get enlightened because all these chemicals are going off as I'm going out, as I'm go, dozing off, as I'm slowly drifting out. And I've been able to teach myself to drift longer. And what I do is I prolong, I've been able to prolong that period of as I start to drop off into sleep. And it's, a, it's fascinating. fascinating. That, that is awesome. It's called the hypnagogic state. Oh, did I, I, I just did it on mine. Didn't even know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's awesome. You can play around with that because it, it's in that space where you have access to interstates. And you're obviously drug free because you're just kind of doing that, that role prior to going to bed. So good for you for being able to play in that uh, in that space. Well, it's my awesome. way of, of right. Uh, thumbing uh, my nose at the system going, OK, <laughs> do what I can. And and you're right. And that's people we're not here to tell people to go out and take a bunch of psychedelic drugs either, but there are known benefits to them when used correctly. Right. And in usually in their natural form, obviously they they've, you know, even ayahuasca that's processed technically, but not really (laughs) because it's not altered outside of the natural elements. So, you know, for like pharmaceutical drugs are far different than their derivatives. But I also could defend, I think rightly so, some of the more synthetic versions like MDMA 
three, four methylene dioxymethamphetamine, also called ecstasy on the street. Uh, you know, it, I think it probably has higher probability of causing problems with long-term use than something like psilocybin or ayahuasca. I'm, and I'm talking about both being, all three being used appropriately in the proper set and setting. Yeah, and psilocybin, guys, is in mushrooms. Mushrooms, mushrooms yeah. Okay. Um, but even MDMA has been sh being shown to be beneficial for people with PTSD, whether it's combat veterans or first responders or victims of sexual abuse. And if you might recall in the early late 80s, early 90s, before it was criminalized, uh, it was actually being used for couples counseling. Because uh, one of the cool benefits of it, if it's used appropriately, the right set and setting, is it drops your defenses. So if you have you know, a married couple and their defenses are dropped and they can speak honestly, openly, authentically with one another, you know, you knock out like nine months worth of bullshit therapy. And I shouldn't say bullshit therapy. You knock out nine months of therapy to get to that point. Mike, to there's that no point. money in that. There's no money in that. <laughs> come on now. That's Don't cut out those people. And, and that's probably the biggest thing I think we've come to is when you look at this and the, and, and the inhibition of our free, or it's, it's based upon money. When you boil it down to its basic element, greed money. And that's, if you can just figure out how that system works, I think you'll make leaps and bounds in, in understanding that I don't say that pharmaceutical drugs are evil by any sense. I think there are times when you need them. I'm an integrative guy. I like modern medicine with ancient sure. medicine. You bring them together. There's benefits to both. I'm not against immunizations wholeheartedly. I'm against how they're, how they're given and implemented, but I'm not against, I'm not against immunizations. So people, I don't want them to get the wrong impression and categorize me and me and you, because I think we believe a lot of the same things. But, you know, with those parts, I mean, like I said, if you just look at money and you go, money is a tool to buy more freedom. And I don't mean that in a strict sense. You don't need, if, if you're financially health and life purpose, you got all that all together, you'll be surprised how little money it takes to live the life you want. And if you can kind of gather those pieces and understand them, that buying purses and shoes and golf clubs and, and going on vacations to Vegas, you can't afford because all your friends are doing it. You know, buying the Lexus because on the commercial, everyone is so happy driving around in their Lexus. If you can get past those things, and I'm not saying if you deserve them and you have the money not to buy those things. What I'm saying is you have to realize those are not the things that are truly going to make you happy. And, and I think that's where we're stuck. Would you agree that we're stuck on the, the objects as opposed uh, to the emotions and things tied to us actually being happy? We've attached objects to the emotions that we've been told make us happy. I completely agree. And I think uh, you do a great job in, in your various books and highlighting that. And, you know, and, and the way the consumer market works, and I'm a free market guy, people should buy whatever yeah, they too. want. I agree. Blah, 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 blah. Very little, very little limitations from the state. Okay. Put that aside. Doesn't mean they should. And that's what I think you and I are talking about. Um, you know, the, the next shiny object is intentional because marketers and, you know, Madison Avenue knows we're not going to be satisfied with the, that purchase. It will last for a certain period of time. 
and our distraction will reemerge and they'll sell us the next thing to make us feel good for the short term. And you can see it uh, magnified a thousand times by our iPhones. We're not buying stuff necessarily, but we're checking Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all these various social media platforms for that instant gratification and the dopamine rush. And yep. the consumer market is no different. It's a dopamine rush. Hopefully lasts a little bit longer than <laughs> checking your Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts. Uh, but it's the same thing. You, you, get, you feel good for the short term by buying whatever it is, you know, because you're going to be like everyone else you see in those commercials, just as you said, happy, but you won't be. So then you got to find the next thing to purchase to make you quote unquote happy. Ultimately, it's a never ending cycle, which is going to increase your debt, decrease your happiness. And I think, you know, I'm not going to tell what, how other people what their happiness thing would be. I just think it's not things. But I think other people engage with deeply and appropriately and authentically could be a better option for many people than buying shit that they don't need. Well, I always say this too, the, the more shit you buy, the more freedom you're taking away from yourself. That's not true. only that, but you're, you're most times... And I have an internet business. Gosh, you know, I, I tell people, you know, try and keep your money in the local economy. You know, don't, you know, don't continue to feed the China beast. I mean, we've done this to ourselves. Uh, our government complicitly has done it. And with that, I, the experiments I always go to as well is we always hear about the the dopamine addiction when 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 mice were given cocaine right they're in a yeah, cave yeah. and they didn't experiment that there was what water and cocaine right and the mice would always go to the cocaine <laughs> no matter what well they did another experiment that they never told you about it's not as well publicized that they put that same mouse in an open environment as in nature and then they put that the cocaine out there, but the, the mouse or mice had the ability to go wherever they wanted, you know, in a bigger area in nature. It wasn't a white box. Guess what they didn't do? They didn't hit the cocaine. <clears throat> Which leads us down the path. And I don't know if you want to go there in this conversation of questioning the whole addiction paradigm, actually. Uh, there's some really interesting people thinking about researching and writing about, you know, that, that, the paradigm we now operate under, you know, that a certain substance has a certain effect on the brain, it's one-on-one -on -one correlation, is not necessarily true. It's escapism. Um, it's the analogy of humans, and this has been used a lot, even smashing pumpkins, rat in a cage. It's, we truly have become rats in a cage. Yeah. And our addictions are part of that. And yeah. our addictions and our unhealthy lifestyles are a coping mechanism of being in that box, in that cage, and thinking right. we can escape. And I, I, I can say it firsthand. You know, I, I went on this adventure now almost a decade ago of the adventure I'm on. I've been doing this for a long time. And I remember when I had first come up to uh, up, up here where I live now in Northeast Washington, because uh, I was still living part-time in San Diego, in Southern California. I would explain to my friends, I go, you don't understand. Soon as I hit the mountains, everything goes away. Nice. And they go, what do you mean? I go, I don't even know how to tell you. It's like I'm in a different kind of time and space. Uh, it's just, I can't even explain it to you. I, I went, 
no, you know, there's no traffic hardly, you know, I'm not in a hurry to get everywhere. My thoughts are different. My actions are different. How I inter interact with people is different. Oh, it's just a totally different thing. And, you know, I still return and I go to California and where I grew up, it's pretty sparsely populated. Um, but even that is a little overwhelming for me at times. And I'm not saying that you have to live in the sticks and in the mountains in order to live this lifestyle. You can implement that three-legged, three-legged stool living in the city. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting listening to you because it reminds me, I did Ayurvedic. Ayurveda is a medicine from India. They're traditional yeah. medical. Yep. Um, just a little north of Esalen yeah, on, in California. Uh, it wasn't at Esalen, although Esalen would have been an amazing place to have this retreat. But it's a week-long retreat, a lot of meditation, a lot of massage, you know, various practices within the Ayurvedic system. And I remember leaving. So this is a week, no television, you know, nothing like that. It's just, you know, solitude, gratitude, peace. And uh, watching television when I got home actually gave me a headache. Oh, the, the interesting. movement of the TV, I was not used to. It didn't take long for me to get used to it. But it was just fascinating going from hearing you. It's like from such a peaceful environment back to quote unquote regular life. And it caused a headache. <laughs> until I got used to it. Well, in the first couple of years, I had no TV. Uh, uh, and I didn't have bandwidth to watch anything online. Uh, so it was a real interesting experiment. Now, I obviously, I have TV. And the only reason, I, again, I'm not being a hypocrite, but I like watching the Discovery Channel, you yeah. know, Science, uh, yeah. Nat Geo. I, I watch it for education. And yeah, and sports. Uh, I, um, I used to be a terrible, terrible sports junkie. I've gotten away from that. I only watch games that I'm interested in my teams and I don't even watch them all. I, I've gotten away from that. But if I can figure out a way to get all my learning channels in one place, which they'll never do, because again, that is against consumerism. Right, right, right. That I'm all for it. But yeah, you're right. And that, that using TV too, we use it as another form of escapism. Uh, on average, an average American spends seven hours on their smartphone, computer, and watching TV every day. And I, I just had, I, I won't use names. I had someone email me on the health side asking me for specific instructions. They had read my book. My health book, pretty much, you've read it. It has everything in it. It has everything you need in it, really, for the most part to at very least get started. And the questions were already answered in the book and they were excuses. And it was about, I don't have the gist of it, which is typical with all the clients. I don't have enough time. Yep, yep, can, yep. can you tell me specifically what I'm supposed to eat when I'm supposed to eat it? And I was like, you just realized you just gave me a whole email of excuses. You need to reread that email. And nice. I was like, I gave him, I said, I went, this took me five seconds to come up with this. And I gave him a quick list of things to eat. And I said, that's what you're getting. I go, if you can't figure this out, I don't know what to tell you, but you're using excuses. You're, you're not even putting in the effort. And that's part of it too, is with that seven hours, people are escaping doing the hard things that they need to change, right? They're using everything as an excuse. Because the thing I hear, and this is not, 
completely false. We work a lot of hours today for the most part, but there's still plenty of free time to do the things you need to do to improve your life. Well, let's actually question that, you know, and not necessarily have to go down that rabbit hole. But even if you look at the research, we're not very productive in the amount of time we put into our work at work. Oh, you know, very little. A couple hours. Except, lucky. Yeah. Except for jobs that might require you to be there for a certain period of time to a certain period of time, like law enforcement or medicine. So you, you actually have to see patients over you know, time, whatever that might be. Most paperwork pushing jobs, instead of eight to 10 hours a day, you could probably get done in three or four. Yep. And if. And if we could organize society or at least the institutions of work in such a way to recognize that as opposed to this industrial age thing where you have to be there for eight to 10 hours a day. No, why don't you just be there for the, get your productive work done and then be free to go home and live your life. I mean, well, that would well, be cool. You, you want to hear my philosophy on that? Sure. Well, we know where the modern day work day came from. It was Henry Ford. That's where it was created. Basically yeah. the, the assembly line, yeah. you know, he figured out, and from everything I've read and studied, not a very nice guy, <laughs> just not a very good person. And he figured out what was the breaking point of having people do repetitive tasks basically before they snapped. The reason I believe why corporate America will never allow us to work three to four hours and get our work done is because it gives us free time to think and do the things we want to do outside of the system. Well, you give us that much free time and we're probably going to create something that we don't have to work in your system anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. The longer, the longer they can make the hours, the more connected they can make us to the job through smartphones. I mean, it's inescapable. Now your boss can reach out and touch you 24 <laughs> seven. And I've, I suffered this in the end of my government career. It was to the point of being absolutely ridiculous. I would get emails three in the morning. I would get texts. I would go on vacation. I never had a moment's peace. It was nonstop. And I said, you know what? This is bullshit. You know, I'm going to, I'm not going to make it. I went, this road I'm on, I'm not going to make it because I can't, I can't survive this way. I felt like it was, a, it was a form, it was a form of kind of psychological terrorism. I just couldn't escape. I felt like I couldn't escape no matter what. And I was not allowed to turn my phone off. I was, I was required to have that phone on me at all times. I had to, on vacations, tra it did not matter. That phone was required to be on me at all times. What kind of crap is that? Uh, I agree. And it's, as you kind of already stated, it's going to get worse. And, and what's interesting, uh, it struck me listening to you talk about how corporate America has no interest in basing things on productivity as opposed to time, because free time would allow people to disengage from corporate America. You know, education system is the same. Yep. You know, kids are in school longer, longer hours of the day, more weeks in the year. And longer in terms of like, now we need to do preschool and, and kind you know, kindergarten and all that kind of good stuff, <clears throat> you know, and it's really a form of social control because, and I, and I think the libertarian critique of, of the education system is legitimate here, especially because <clears throat> if, you know, if you take kids or the conservative critique, I should say, 
if you take kids away from their families and indoctrinate them through the school system, it's a great first step of destroying the family, you know, as first unit. And you don't even have to define the family in traditional conservative terms, whatever the family is for you, right? But, you know, the parents are no longer responsible for educating their children. Someone else does that. Parents are no longer responsible for their own parents. Someone else is responsible for that. It's like, you know, we've kind of destroyed intergenerational connections through our various institutions and programs and such. And I think it's just getting worse. And, you know, obviously there are certain parents that probably shouldn't be parents and there's certain situations <laughs> that are devastating. Yeah, we probably shouldn't certain... go down that rabbit hole yet. <laughs> yeah, I know. But for the most part, you know, why is it that, and this is a question I pose, I don't necessarily have an answer for, you know, 50 years ago for middle-class America, you only need one working parent. And I'm not saying it should be the man versus the woman, you know, oh, back then it was the man, but women should be able to free, free to work if they want to too. But and now you need two parents, if you're lucky to even have two parents, to work, to barely make it. What's, you know, like, what changed in society that allowed that to occur? And my, like, dream would be like, wow, what if you could just go back to the fact of just having one parent work productively so more of their time is spent with their family or, or doing their hobbies or whatever they want to be doing less time at work and not the need for both parents. If you're lucky enough to have both parents to have to work 10 hours a day, two hours in traffic, you know, considering both ways, no time to actually be with the kids. If you're lucky, maybe you can catch a ball game with the kids. You're not responsible for educating the kids and feeding the kids and providing them moral guidance and making sure they're physically healthy. And it's like, wow, what the hell is going on here? Indoctrination system. It's yeah. uh and the goal is to make them toe the line and be maximum maximum consumers and not question anything. And I know that's a hard line view, but I truly believe that. And I think during the 60s and early 70s, that's why communes started to come about. Yeah. Is that was the hippies, and I love hippies. I inter, I connect with my inner hippie as much as I possibly can. And, you know, but they had had enough. They said, enough's enough. And unfortunately, they even got integrated into the system eventually, right? And now they're part. I meet, you meet some of the, the, the people who grew up during that time and you can see it, you know, they had that passion, but it got beat out of them a little bit. We need more inner hippie. We need to go back. And anyone who has seen up here, there's quite a few in, in my going around living in my RV and everything. I've been around a lot of homeschooled kids. Cool. Wow. Those kids are smart, man. And not only are they smart, they're so well-behaved. There is a drastic difference between a homeschooled kid, the way they interact with people, and a traditionally educated kid in our today's school system. It's yep. very, very different. And, they're and very respectful. Just, and they can look you in the eye. They can have conversation. Yeah. I can have a conversation with a seven-year-old. Literally homeschooled kid, full-blown conversation. Nice. Yeah, it's amazing. And I'd make a distinction perhaps between even homeschooling and unschooling, which is even a, you know, even a in, more interesting phenomenon, at least to me, talking about finding your why and your passions as opposed to a curriculum developed by someone else. Yeah, you know, I think we've 
we've hit hit a lot of subjects. We probably should wrap this up before people's eyes glaze over, you know, <laughs> and they go, God, these guys can talk a lot. True. But all we're trying to do is, again, open the minds, you know, and and try and figure out we don't have all the answers. We don't. I, I am no, you know, I am no lifestyle clairvoyant. You know, I can't give you all the answers. I just know we need to question more and we need to change things for the better. That's all. That's all you can do. And so for people who want to get in touch with you, look into some of your services, seal fit and all that good stuff, how do they get a hold of you? Wow, great question. So I have a website, Michael D. Osterlink, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, the letter D, my last name, Osterlink, O-S-T-R-O-L-E-N-K.com. And all my podcasts and interviews and anything I've written and all my work is up there. So you can find any of my work. On Twitter, I'm M Osterlink. It's M-O-S-T-R-O-L-E-N-K. Um, I work for SealFit is one of the hats, many hats that I wear. Go to SealFit.com. Uh, I, I run or co-run, depending on which project we're talking about, some programs for SealFit called the Unbeatable Mind Academy. You can Google Unbeatable Mind and find some of the work I do there. Uh, and if you're interested in my policy work, you can just probably just go through my direct website, hit me up. And learn about some of my transpartisan work, which is actually included on there. You can see some of the talks I've given across the country on various po uh, policy topics. And some of the topics that you and I have been discussing for the past couple hours are up there as well. And you can also go to YouTube and check me out there. I've given talks. C-SPAN has covered a few of them. And if you're on, uh, if you're on um, you can go to iTunes, Australink Radio. You can find my podcast there. And if you're on Twitter, you can do hashtag O as in the letter O, radio, and look for all my interviews, including my interviews with you. Who, who's that? Me? Oh, man. You. <laughs> you made a mistake. Well, bring me on. What were you thinking? <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I highly recommend you guys go check out Michael's work. Uh, like I said, we ran into each other, and we don't always agree on everything, but that's part of it. That's how it should be. And I, right you should never have to agree with wholeheartedly everything of someone else. And for those of you, make sure to hit the subscribe button. And again, if you want to be part of the Simple Life Circle, go to the simplelifenow.com forward slash better life and check out my books. Again, thanks, Michael. And we'll definitely have you on again. And we'll talk about thanks, some Gary. other interesting subjects. Take care, buddy. You too. You've been listening to Your Better Life with Gary Collins. Now get out there and make it happen.